as we were singing that part of the song, I will be here waiting for you, I want you to hear Luke chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus talking, he says, I tell you, he will see that he will get justice and come quickly. This is talking about those crying out to God while they're seeing wickedness happen upon the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to come quickly. Justice is going to come. But listen to this next part. However, it's like, I'm going to do my part. The Son of Man's going to bring justice. When he comes, he's coming with justice. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When we wrote this song, this is a homemade goodie right here. When we wrote this song, this, you know, I don't talk much about my writing because I, I, I think if I told you I wrote it, you guys wouldn't like it, you know? So I let them come up here and sing it. But one day we got to show behind the scenes of what's going on when we do it because I think at this point I was saying to them, come on, we need to say right here, I will be here. And then I'm always like, Desi, Desi, you sing it, you sing it. And then how do you say it? Wait. Come on. And before, before we sing it together, I want you to get that in your heart today, that word, that you are trusting God today, that you are saying, God, I will be here. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what our country's going to go through. I don't know what my family's going to go through. But Jesus, I can guarantee one thing. I'll be right here waiting for you. I'm going to be here waiting for you. And if I take my last breath, I know you'll be waiting for me there. So just like how you're waiting for me to come to you, if I should die, I'm waiting for you for your second return. Amen. Can we sing it one more time? I will be here waiting for you, Jesus. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. I'm not backing down. I'm holding on to the faith that was passed down from the apostles to generation to generation. I'll be right here, even if my friend's not, even if my community's not. I'm going to be waiting. I'm going to be waiting, waiting for you, Jesus. Hearts lifted up, hands raised one more time. I will. Amen. If you believe it, give him a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. We'll be here waiting for you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The few, the faithful, will multiply and change the earth. Amen. We're going to be waiting and be multiplying. How many are glad you're in church today? How many are glad that the snow is melting? Amen. How many are glad that spring is springing forth? I know somebody's excited. I've been looking at some of you guys taking vacations, and I had just taken one, and I'm like, I want to take another, but I want to be here waiting for spring. I want faith. Amen. I want to stay. And I'm like, Lord, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe right now because I've been counting down spring. My wife counts down for Christmas, and I'm like, that's not exciting. Count down for spring. Count down for spring. She has this little calendar. Count down to Christmas. Count down to when I see the sun again. Count down to when I can go out and get my true color back, my melatonin. You know what I'm saying? I need my melanin. People look at pictures of me, and they're like, what changed with you? The guys who were doing the documentary for Juan, literally they came because and, and, they saw the winter, the, the winter Anglo self, and they're like, what's wrong? I, something's different about you because when you look at the summer pictures, you look at when it went down at Nate Nini's Deli, I'm giving the Latinos a run for their money. Man, and, and see, I'm part Italian, so we're Mediterranean too, and so is my family is Greek. Man, we're meant to be out in the sun. And so I'm so glad I got to preach about that for five minutes. You guys ready to get into the scriptures? Okay, open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to talk about the church of Pergamos. Today's message is repent or else. Come on, say it with me. Repent. Pause. Come on, you got to put the pause in there. Repent or else. There you go. Revelation chapter 2. It just cracks me up all the time when I'm on the streets 
having earned a doctorate by God's grace in ministry over 20 years, and somebody wants to inform me at the top of their lungs about this close to my face what the Bible says and doesn't say. It just, it never fails to amaze me, the stupidity of people upon this earth. Like, you're going to walk up to a preacher, the person who's out there with the Word of God, and you're going to get this far from their face and try to convince him or her what it says or doesn't say. Just think about that for a second. Honestly, just think about that for a second. That would be like somebody, you know, doing something in their expertise out there. Maybe you see a construction worker, you know, pouring concrete, and you get this close to their face. Why are you pouring concrete like this? I know nothing about concrete, but I'm going to tell you what I think about this. But isn't that just how people are in society? That's just how we are. That's how, that's how privileged we've all become. Trust me, I will own my white privilege because there is no other group of people that are more resistant and, and more, more resistant and more rebellious to the gospel than white privileged educated people. I will talk about that for a little bit. But we as Americans, especially Chicagoans, we're just used to the best. We're like the fine wine tasters of everything, you know. We always have something to complain about because we think we know everything. We have a phone in our pocket. We're smart, you know. And this, this kind of thinking in the church is absolutely ridiculous. You and I should be able to open up our Bibles and explain the Jesus of the Bible to people clearly. This phrase that we have right here comes from the New King James. So those of you who are used to me preaching out of the NIV, I'm going to the King's version here, taking out the these and thous, and there you got the New King James. But the King James version in English around since 1611 has had this phrase in it. This phrase, repent or else, has been around longer than you, has been around longer than our cities, has been around longer than our country. So this is going to outlast us. How many believe this phrase, repent or else, is going to outlast us? So who are we to look down on this phrase with our 21st century vernacular and our way of thinking and somehow now look down on Jesus? Like Jesus shouldn't have said this. You can't see it here because we just do the black and white. But if you have a Bible with the red-lettered edition to help remind you when Jesus is talking, this is red letters. This is Jesus dealing with the churches. There are seven of them. We are on number three. We already have covered two of them. We've talked about the church of Ephesus. Last week we talked about the church of Smyrna. And today we're talking about the church of Pergamos. All of these are cities and regions that were reached with the gospel within the first couple years of the disciples going out. Most of them are related to Paul and his ministry. This is one of the churches we know little about, but it's in the same region now known as Asia Minor. That region is Turkey today, and they're all kind of just lined up with each other. And so the, the best explanation we have in history without making things up is that someone from Paul's churches that were around the area, like Ephesus, went over here and planted a church, just like how we have people uh, starting life groups and going to different suburbs or starting churches in different cities and areas. It would be probably more likely that that happened. But as we get to this kind of a message, I just preface it because this is how we're going to be judged by Jesus. As people have said to us before, don't judge me, don't judge me. And then we say to them, I'm not judging you, but I'm telling you what the judge said. And then they say, well, nobody's perfect. But listen, the perfect person has told me to be perfect and then tell you what he perfectly said. Do you see the contradictions that they live within? Don't, nobody gets it. Let's start with our foundation of truth. How many know truth doesn't contradict itself? Okay, let's start with how we interact with people so you can see why I'm prefacing this. When I interact with people according to this culture and the standards that they set, they use these standards, think of it like this, to build an argument against Christianity, okay? Their argument is like a house, it's got some walls, it's got a roof, it's got some rooms, and they have a lot of different opinions and things this argument contains. In this argument, there, there is contained their opinions about culture, their opinions about reality. And all of these you know, things have walls, has a foundation in some sense and all of that. But what they don't do is look at what is holding up the house. I mean, you can look at this floor and go, this is, you know, this is where I'm going to start building today. But what's holding up this floor? 
What is holding up the floor? It's the ground beneath it, right? Something that's much more sturdy than the very thing you're standing on as your floor. And what happens is, is when you start talking to people about Jesus, is they want to construct arguments and things that they think you should take serious against the Jesus of the Bible. But all the while, they're not examining what's beneath the floor of this argument. What's underneath? Like, let me check down. What is here? What is holding this thing up? How many know this is concrete under here? And then underneath this concrete is called the earth. And the earth, you kind of, how many know you need the earth to build a building or build a house? How many know you don't start with this? You don't start with the two-by-four and just toss it out in the middle of space. How many know to build a house, you need to have an earth or a foundation or a planet or something? And this is, this is the thing. Everybody get this. Everybody get this. I know some of you love to take notes. Draw this out. What is the sinner's earth? What is the very source of foundation for everything they're saying against our Jesus? All the problems that they have. Where's the earth? I don't want to start right here. Like here, here they'll start with the floor. Humans matter. Humanism is important. Do things for human life. My question is, why does humans matter? Do amoebas matter? Do the worm matter? What's, what's the foundation of you even starting with humans matter? Does everybody get that? Because I will preach just on this before I even read the verse. Jesus said, build your house upon the rock. He said, my words are the rock. So we have a rock. We start right with God. God is the earth. God is the foundation for everything else we're building. That's why I can say I love people too. I think people, uh, you know, matter and lives matter and all of these things because th this is important. This floor is important. But what's more important is the very foundation. And so when people start talking about our, our Bible and they say things like, well, I can never serve a God, you know, that would send people to hell because of just loving somebody. You know, that's the way they always phrase it. They're just loving somebody. And and in their mind, in, in their mind, that's, that's the best argument. That's the best place to start. I believe in love, and love is my floor. Here's love. Here it is. But my question is, who defines love? What's underneath love? Where's love coming from? Does love come from the goo through the zoo to you? Because in the animal kingdom, love looks a lot different. <laughs> Have you ever seen the kind of love that exists in the animal kingdom? They do whatever they pretty much want in the name of reproduction, okay? And, uh, you know, you, you ask them, well, where does love come from? Our Bible says God is love. And so all that is good in love comes from God. And so I'm glad I'm taking a few steps back because I want us to have a worldview. Everybody say worldview. I want us to see the world through Jesus so that when we're looking at these scriptures, it's not just for these people back then. It's how we see the world. Now, having understood that, everybody get this. Jesus is judging his church. This is not just Jesus talking to sinners. So maybe you get to the point as a Christian, you're like, okay, I understand. Sinners will be judged. I'm, you know, I may not feel comfortable with it, but I'm, I'm okay going along with it because it seems like the Bible does talk about a separating of sinner and saint, a goat and sheep, etc. But then those same very people may say, but I have a problem with us, you know, kind of seeing judgment in the church. Just leave Christians alone. You know, we're already in. Don't mess with us. That's literally like every obese person going to the gym and saying, don't mess with me. I came to the gym. I'm okay. Now, I'm not saying we, we then fat shame, if I can use that word, okay? And I have been fat before, so I loved myself fat, and I love myself skin. No matter where you are, love yourself, okay? But everybody track with me. If you're in the gym, and I know there's some place like Planet Fitness, no judgment here, but at some point, you're going to have to say, that's not really a pull-up. If you want to learn how to do pull-ups, we're going to have to make a judgment on what a pull-up is and what a pull-up is not. And we're going to help you do it. So even there, they don't even catch themselves in their own contradiction. No judgment here, no judgment zone. Okay, so you won't judge me walking up in this place without paying. Right? Because what can I say back to Planet Fitness? When they, when they say, you haven't paid, what will I say to them? Don't you judge me. Don't judge me on what a payment is. Listen, I have paid you with my love. Kisses. Kisses is my form of payment, and so you better not judge me. Don't judge me on what a, a payment is. We have our own definition. Don't judge me on what a pull-up is. All strong. I'm pulling up, you know. No, at some point, even in a place that says no judgment, you're still making a judgment. 
You're making a judgment. And if we did that to tease them, they would go, yeah, you're right. What we're saying is we mean no judgment about this, this, this. Oh, okay. And they're going to clarify. So we as Christians have to be careful when we say, well, we shouldn't judge each other or we shouldn't expect things from each other. We should all just get along and accept whatever somebody calls Christianity because as long as they're in the church. Listen, this does not give us an excuse to be mean or, or ridicule or embarrassed, but we have to have judgment in the church. Jesus is literally giving us the report card of seven churches so we can be ready for it. So if God has told me something about the report card, and then I come to where I'm going to be judged, you're going to be judged as a part of this church, as a part of this generation and what you've done here. If you come to heaven violating the very same things he got upset with them about, will you and I have any excuse? So we need to accept a Jesus that not only judges the world for condemnation, but judges a world, uh, judges a church for conviction to be what he called them to be. Now, those of you might think, well, in 1 John it says there's no judgment there. That is the judgment of condemnation. There are multiple kinds of judgment. And in the context of 1 John, he's saying that we're in love, we're not afraid of hell. And so true Christians who know God loves them and is loving God and pursuing after them shouldn't be upset with Jesus' report cards because they know it's not a heaven or hell issue. It's a matter of obedience, being convicted to be who God wants them to be. How many know I make judgments in my house, but I'm not going to kick them out and make them live on the streets? You see, my children should never be scared of my judgment of what I would do to someone breaking into the house to cause harm. So my children can rest at peace in my house knowing that I will never use force or um, violence or anything against them that would harm them or do anything bad to them because they know Father's love. Somebody say the Father's love. But how many know that person who wants to come in through that window better fear something? (laughs) They better have some fear in their heart of what's going to happen if they come through that window, okay? And you say, you're a pastor, you're supposed to pray for them. I will pray for them while I'm unloading some things to them. While I'm helping them meet, I'll be like, get ready to meet Jesus. As they're laying there, I shouldn't have broken into your house. That's right. But say this with me, Father, Father, I have sinned. You know, okay, now you're ready. There are some serious things, there are some serious consequences in life, Amen. Serious consequences. And that's one of the things that we have to be aware of when we read this is that Jesus is judging. When somebody, now here, here's a couple contradictions. People say, don't judge me. Going back to that, that's where I was at at one point. When they say, don't judge me, and we go, I'm not judging, but I'm telling what the judge said. So in other words, I'm not making the decision. I'm not the judge Judy here. I'm not trying to be, but I'm sharing the judgment of the judge. If they then respond back to that, well, you're not supposed to do that, then you can ask them, are you judging me about not judging? Because aren't they making a judgment? What is their judgment? Stop judging. So now they're sitting there with the gavel. They're on the the stand up there as the judge going, court and order. Uh, Judge, whatever their name, name is, Judge Sally's court is in session. I deem you, Christian, unfit to share the words of Jesus. You will no longer share them anymore. That is my judging. Isn't that what they have just done? They have made a judgment that Christians cannot speak the judgments of God. And then they'll say, like I said before, you'll start preaching about sin or something that's wrong, and you'll use the phrase, repent. You're not going to call them a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You're actually going to say a word that's good, repent. That word should mean like your debts are going to be cleared. How many would be happy today if the credit card company would call you up and say, repent for what you've done, and we're going to erase all of this debt right here? If your mortgage or whatever said, we're going to just, just repent, you know, and we're going to take care of it. You still get to keep it. We're going to let you, you know, go on and, you know, without the debt. I would say whatever it takes to clear the debt. Okay, let's clear the debt. And so Jesus is clearing debt through repentance, through us changing our behavior in that sense. I think you get the example. But now we as Christians are being told, well, you can't talk to me about sin because repentance offends me. Well, Jesus the judge told me to tell you to repent. Well, I don't want you to do what Jesus told you to do. That's, a, that's in other words, what they're saying. So now, what does that make them? 
That makes them my new Jesus. So you don't want me to listen to what Jesus wants me to do. You want me to now listen to you. Here's the difference, Jack. You didn't die on the cross, buried, and raised again from the dead. I'm going to follow the real Jesus. So the real Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, preach repentance, teach them to turn to Jesus Christ to to receive the Son. How many are ready for the, the, the scriptures today on this? Amen. That was the intro. Somebody say, that's just the intro. I'm going to read it all together in its entirety. By God's grace, we'll go through it then verse by verse. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have some who are there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 16 and 17 now. 17, he who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Can I hear an amen to the Word of God? There's the Word of God. It's pretty clear about what he's asking them to do. There may not be a lot of information of the things uh, like the teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans that we know, but I think we get the point that God's upset about some of the things going on there. They know what they're doing. He wants them to stop, and if they don't stop and repent, he's going to come fight against them. But if they do the right thing, they're going to get some hidden manna. They're going to get some hidden uh, tostones. They're going to get some hidden some bread and some butter at the Italian restaurant. They're going to get something that they really want. How many want the hidden manna? How many want that? I want that. How many want a stone with your name on it that nobody else knows but you? That's special. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want you to see how in Revelation, when he talks about the churches, he has a pattern to scroll to the opening declaration. There's usually a declaration. Then there is something that he'll praise them about, kind of like the bun. And then he'll give them the meat, the correction, and the warning. And then at the end, he'll end with some praise. So if you could go and scroll for them, please. So what does he declare there? What is the declaration he gives the church of Pergamos? He says, I have a two-edged sword. We believe that's the Word of God. So as you're reading the book of Revelation, it's not good to start there if you have not read the other parts of the Bible. I believe it's the last thing on purpose. So you should have a somewhat understanding of the Old Testament and the Scriptures written up until this time. And the book of Hebrews has been clear with us that the two-edged sword is the Word of God. He then gives praise to the Pergamos church. There's two things they're doing right. They're holding fast to the name of Jesus, and they haven't denied Jesus' faith in the uh, faith in the face of death. And when we say faith, we don't just mean believing for believing's sake. We mean believing what was taught. So we have a confession of faith, confession of what we believe in the teachings of Jesus. The rebuke, we heard it. There is two groups of false teachings that are circling around the church, and people, not all of them, some are believing it. There is a doctrine that is similar to that which is of Balaam from the Old Testament, and that leads to compromising, eating food, sacrificed to idols, because that was a big deal back then, and sexual immorality, which is, was and still is a big deal. And the other one is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which most theologians, including myself, know little to nothing about. All we know is that they know about it, and he's telling them to stop following this person named Nicholas, because that's where it comes from. So Nicholas is a bad mamma jamma, not only in this church, but in other churches, maybe like a Joseph Smith or a Charles Taze Russell, one of these false prophets, you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbardism or whatever. There's something that's being believed there by this person, and God is saying, stop doing that. He then gives them the instruction. He doesn't just, you know, tell them that they're doing something wrong. He tells them what to do right, repent of the false doctrines, and then he gives them a warning, an ultimatum. Literally, guys, get this. He says, repent or what? Or else. 
That is a biblical term. So people in our culture who are upset with a Jesus that talks about repenting or suffering consequences don't know the Jesus of the Bible. But how many here, here in the scriptures, because the Bible says here what the Spirit is saying, how many here in the ultimatum grace and mercy and love How many are hearing here in the reading of the Scripture that he doesn't want to take the sword out on them? He doesn't want to fight against them, hence the warning. And then how does he close? This is the one phrase that is found in all of the closings. He says, whoever has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. And then the last thing he says here, he's going to give them a, some hidden manna and a stone with their name written on it. Now, if you go all the way up to the top, good sir, please. I do have a chart that to the top, thank you. If you go... Uh, that's opposite. That's going to the bottom. Thank you, sir. If you go back to the top, you'll see a chart that I have here for you. Uh, you know what? I actually, no, shame on me. I forgot to put the chart here. Go up to the top right here. Just scroll up a little bit, and I want everybody to see. Go to the Revelation series for me, please. And now pick on the one from last week. Sometimes I forget to add them in. Go to the one from Smyrna. There, this is a chart that I have made. Now you can scroll down. Thank you. This chart right here gives what I am saying in outline form for all of the churches. And as you're in your time of prayer and Bible study, you can kind of see like what's going on in a big picture way as we go through this part of the book of Revelation. One of the things that you'll see is that there's only two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that do not get a rebuke and a warning. And the reason why I want you to kind of be able to pull back and see that is because the uh, heart that Jesus has here is not to bring every down and to shame them. He's just dealing with them honestly, and we're supposed to walk away from this report card going, I want to be more like Smyrna than Pergamos. I want to be more like Philadelphia than Laodicea. And sometimes people think in the church that's a bad thing to say. I want to be more like this and less like this, or I want to be more of this kind of Christian than this other kind of Christian. And we say like, well, man, that's just kind of putting them down. Maybe that's the way you're looking at it, but I'm actually looking at those people are a walking proverb of who I do not want to be. Now, I don't want to go through all the names of who I don't want to be right now, but all you have to do is put adultery in the church, suicide among pastors. All you have to do is look up a seeker-sensitive movement, these kinds of things, and those are the ones to me that are getting the most correction because if you notice here, praise for the church is found for all of them, and scroll up for me, please, except the Laodicean church. So there's actually some churches that Jesus has nothing good to say about. So there are some, get this everybody, there are some churches on one side that he says, I have nothing bad to say about you. Then there's another church on this side, he says, I have nothing good to say about you. And then the other four churches, he's like, yeah, I got some good and I got some bad. And if we can go back to the notes, please take your time. But as you look at your scriptures, as they're putting the notes uh, back up there, we see here that he says that he has a double-edged sword. Does, he say, does it say in the scripture he has a double-edged tickle stick? He's just going to come down and tickle everybody? Jesus has got a tickle stick. That's what he calls it. It's a little tickle stick. No. Jesus has a sword. What do you do with the sword? <laughs> cut what? The machete? You're going to cut down trees and mangoes and different things? What do you do with a sword? I'm not talking like a machete. I'm not talking about just cutting down. And by the way, I used to have a machete. And I had a friend that really loved it because I used to live in New Orleans and we'd go out to the swamps and we'd go crawfish and we would do the machete. And you got to say with the accent, right, the machete. So we would do the machete like that. And my friend loved it so much that we called him Machete Man, Machete Man, okay? And then they made a movie, a movie about something like that. So don't see that. That's not my friend. That has nothing to do with that. But... Um, but a, but a machete can be kind of fun. And go to the verses at the beginning, please. Uh, the machete can be kind of fun, but this is not even a machete. This is a sword. I'm just going to ask you the question again. What do you do with a sword? Somebody say cut. Let's add to that. What do you do with a sword? Cut, slice. Uh, are, we, are we slicing mangoes? Yes, people. <laughs> okay. Amen. Now you got it. A sword is used to slice people. Can I just get an amen on that? Am I making this up? Okay. So out of his mouth is the word of the Lord. And we're like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. No, no, no. The word of the Lord is the sword cutting down people, cutting them down. 
Anyone on the day of judgment, Armageddon, think through the stories that we're going to get to. Remember, this is the book of Revelation. This is not, you know, Reader's Digest or, or funny poems that you read at the bathroom, you know, and things like that. You know, just readers that you read, like light reading. This is the book of Revelation, which is going to talk about hell coming to earth. This is going to talk about beasts and, and demons and wild demons being led upon people and tormenting them. And how does it end? It ends with the one with the double-edged sword cutting down over 100 million people and the blood being as high as a horse's head. That's our Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because in this context, repent or else, what does he say to the church? Repent, or else I come, and I'm fighting against you too. I always tell the story like this to help people understand our good God, our loving Father, also as judge and warrior. Once again with my family. Take me for an example. Love my children. I don't have a sword, but I have knives and guns, okay? Do you think my children should fear me having knives and guns? No. Those of you who have friends that are police officers or have been in the military, does your friend carrying a big gun or driving a big tank scare you? Because you're thinking, my friend's not pointing that thing at me. Who does the tank scare? The criminal, the warrior, uh, the one on the other side, the enemy, right? If I today was in the military, let's say I was a general, and I was overseas and I was fighting somewhere, my children would have to fear nothing of the cannon fire that I would be aiming, nothing to, to fear of the airstrikes I would be calling down, the infantry coming against the battle on the battlefront to those on the front lines. My children would have no fear of that. They would be in my house. Somebody say the father's house. They would be in my house knowing they are safe. But if they got recruited by an ISIS video and they said, I want to go join the jihadis in Syria, that I am now fighting against as the general, they are going to be very afraid of what I can do. And I want everybody to understand this. Jesus starts in verse 12 saying, I have a two-edged sword. And scroll down now towards the end when he deals with these people. When he deals with this church, verse 16, thank you, sir. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them, those who are holding to these teachings, with the sword of my mouth. What does that say to us as Christians? And what does that say to us for those who want to make it to heaven and be blessed? It says, I better not be doing the things he wants to fight against. He uses that nasty four-letter word, hate. Christians aren't supposed to hate anything, right? We're not supposed to hate, but he uses that word. He says, some of you are believing the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. I hate it. And he says, some of you are doing that. And then the others, he says, you're like Balaam. You are wicked worshiping these idols, and you're sexually perverse. Get it right, or I'm going to strike you down. Wow. But go up just a little bit, please. But what was the good that he said? The good was that they were willing to die as martyrs for the faith. A few verses up, please. He said, I'm happy that most of you, you're holding fast to my name, and you have not denied my teachings. Even when your friend Antipas, my faithful martyr, died, you kept fighting for the gospel. And so this is now our choice, isn't it? We serve Jesus, everybody get this, and on the earth, they strike us with their sword. Or we turn our back on Jesus, and he strikes us with his sword. I know some of you may not like those two options. Like, is there a third option that doesn't involve a sword? Can we find a third option, Jesus? I want the one next to the beach, a nice drink in my hand. That's the one I want. And Jesus is saying, for these folks where Satan dwells, which Satan is not an ever-present being, an omnipresent being, he can only be in one place at one time, though he can use his, uh, his army of demons to disperse and do his working and his bidding for his kingdom of darkness. These folks were where Satan was dwelling at that time. 
Why wasn't Satan in Rome at that time? Why wasn't Satan somewhere in the, in the Far East, you know, in Beijing, what we would now consider Beijing? Why wasn't he in Mount Chupichu? Why was he there? Something about Satan and his plan wanted, he wanted to be seated at Pergamos. He wanted to be right there, and he wanted to cause havoc from his front-line perspective. And Jesus is saying, literally, you have the devil himself wanting this to go bad for you guys. But I need you to understand this. If you turn your back on me and go towards these doctrines, which we would obviously associate with Satan pushing, he is pushing Balaamism. He is pushing Nicolaitanism. Jesus is saying, if you go towards that, I will now have no choice but to fight against you as I'm going to fight against Satan and everyone on his side. Because we hear in Matthew chapter 25 that hell, lake of fire, was prepared not for humans but for the devil and his angels. So anyone who sides with the traitor in the cosmic battle of God versus evil will suffer along with the evil. So we as Christians ought not to fear our salvation or to fear whether or not Jesus is going to judge us when we are truly with him. Notice that he says, Antipas is my faithful martyr, and and you guys are holding on to my name, and you're not denying me. I am yours. You are mine. I'm going to give you hidden manna, and I'm going to give you a stone with a name that only you know on it. He is encouraging them. But at the same time, he says, in the midst of this, this church that has a lot of good going for it, There is some serious wrong. There is false teachings. There is false beliefs. And it can truly damn you and cause you to be on the other side of my fight. When we go to the end, I want to encourage you before we go back to the false teachings. But at the end, he says hidden manna. What I think about uh, hidden manna, we go to the scriptures, is that in John, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I believe in heaven as we are in, or excuse me, on the new earth and the new heavens have, have come. We come out of heaven to rule and reign with Christ and then forever be with him. I believe that he will give us of himself, whether it's through the tree of life, whether it's through his words. We are going to eat and be full of what the world has not been able to see. This is hidden to them. The, the substance for their soul, what they truly need is the word of God. Jesus said in John 6, 49 and 50, that he is the bread of life. And some of our Roman Catholic friends then take that literally when they're eating the bread, thinking they're eating Jesus. But how can we show them that that is false? How many know when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was still physically there? So obviously he didn't say, this is my body, here's my thumb, nibble on that. Transubstantiation, here's my finger, go nibble on that. Let's see, oh, come on, we love our Roman Catholic friends and family, but they got to get away from that, that silliness. He's there with them in the flesh at the Last Supper, and he goes, this is my body. Okay, I get the illustration now. I'm not literally ever going to eat you. This is going to be figurative of everything you told me about your words being the bread of life. Does everybody get how that just knocks that argument out? Because they'll take you to John 6 if they're an informed Roman Catholic and be like, it said, eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they got offended and left because they knew that this was going to happen. And we believe when we pray or the priest prays over these elements, they transub, their substance transforms when it happens. And now we're eating the body and blood of Jesus, as John 6 says. But when you go to the actual Last Supper, when you go to the actual part of communion where we can now decipher the words of Jesus, because he spoke in parable all the time. And one man, when he heard Jesus say be born again he goes I don't know if my mama's going to like that because trying to get up in there might be a little tight and might hurt a whole lot it gets quiet when I talk like that but you have some women going yeah I can feel feel the pain there yeah so a man literally heard Jesus talking about being born again and he goes okay here I come mom and and Peter and and Jesus like "Er, let's stop right there I didn't mean you're going to physically go back to your mother, Nicodemus. And this is one of the smartest people on their, on their team at this point, okay? It, it, it doesn't mean, Nic- Nicodemus, you're going back up in there. I'm talking what is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And even in John chapter 6, he's very clear about that. And he says, the words I speak to you, these are spiritual words. Hidden manna. Somebody say hidden manna. The Word of God. Somebody say the Word of God. Is my substance. Amen. Some may say the world doesn't see it now, but I will see it. Amen. We hear the word, but we don't see it, and we don't literally get to eat it. And in some way, we're going to participate 
and eating the words of God. And I know that may sound a little bit strange, but how many know when uh, Bart Simpson is in the cartoon and he begins to eat bread or eat something in that cartoon, how many know that that's the code, that's the information, right? Everybody tracking with me? He's not actually eating a real piece of bread. He's eating code because he's made out of code too, right? Have you ever thought about the code of the universe? Have you ever thought about what literally bread is? It's the code of God in our natural world. So if God can code the world to produce wheat that then makes bread and all of these things, how can we think it's so strange that his word is going to code in his actual word and give us substance? We're already doing it right now. By his spoken word, that just got deep for some of you guys. We're here right now because of the spoken code of Jesus. Like how Bart Simpson is is a code-eating code in that world, you're a code-eating code in this world. And in the spiritual realm, when we go to these, uh, when we go to the new heavens and new earth, etc., whatever his word makes is going to be there for us to eat anyways. But there will be something there, like I said, whether it's the tree of life, as we'll get to at the end of the book of Revelation, which was also there in the book of Genesis, whether it's the tree of life, the fruit from that, or something else, we will be eating the word of God from the word of God, and it's going to be awesome. How many want to manja with Jesus? That's Italian for eat, okay? I am bilingual to my people every now and then. What's eat in Spanish? Okay, good. My word's cooler. I like manja, manja. Manja sounds a lot better and it's easier for me to say. Say that word one more time because it sounds really hard. Manja is the better one. He keeps saying, say one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you my Spanish tutor. You're going to teach me Espanol. Do you even know Spanish? Oh, I'm so sorry. Picking the, out of all the people. What is the word for eat? Comer. 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 Now everybody say manja. See how much easier that was? Let's go Italian. No, I'm half kidding. Okay, but let's get to the serious. Somebody say, get serious. Okay, we're supposed to be serious right now. The next one, this one, people might get a little bit confused, but I think I have a way to encourage us. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone, and I'm going to give you a new name that nobody knows except the one who receives it. I believe at this time, as we can carry around even like credit cards and different things, we're going to carry around a stone with our name in it. Does anybody have a credit card on them today? Anybody have a card? What are cards normally made out of that we carry in our wallet? Listen to this card. Does that sound like plastic? No, this Goldman Sachs card from Apple is made out of some metal. And I always feel cool when I pull it out and I'm like, and I drop it on the, co- the counter. I'm like, badow, listen to that card. This card just feels good. There's no plastic around here. If I got into a survival situation, I could, I could trim this thing down to a device to eat animals with. There's some, there's some metal in this thing. You guys tracking with me? And so when we see something like, oh, you're going to get a stone, that sounds so far out and weird. No, it does. I'm already carrying around metal that has something on it you don't know about. Now, there, are, there is a bank that knows what I have on here, and I should know what I have on here. But everyone get the, the beauty of this. Jesus says that he's going to give us a name that only we know. How special we are to Jesus. He can name every single star and not use the same name twice. He knows every single hair on your head. And when you overcome and you are enjoying the hidden manna, he is going to give you and I a name that represents his intimacy with us and no one else will know. There will be secrets in heaven. Think about that. There will be secrets. Your knowledge will be limited. One of the things I already know you won't know is what name he has personally given me. Now, my wife, she may scoot over next to me in heaven and be like, tell me your name. I want to know what you got. Tell me yours. I'm going to tell you mine. But why do we do that? Teasing with my wife. Why do we do that? Because when someone knows something we don't, we get a little jealous. We get a little envious, you know. So maybe my name is Lion, you know. And somebody else's name may be Giraffe 
or something like that. It's giving examples out of animal names right now. But maybe, maybe it's like that. And so then out of what our own insecurity on earth, we want to know what did Father say? What did Jesus get from the Father to give to us? Oh, you're a lion. Oh, he must not see me bold because he called me a giraffe. He only sees me as tall, reaching up, going places where lions can't go. But in heaven, we'll have no jealousy. In heaven, we'll each know that the name he gave you is just as special as the name he gave me. And so some of us who have heard, you know, that uh, God might be playing games with us or using us as his pets and that we're not important to him, this kind of a scripture reminds us that we are so important to him that he is waiting with a stone to give every one of his creatures, every one of the ones he has made in his image, that they will know how special and unique they are to him. I want to receive that stone with my name on it. Where Will we wear it like some people wear birthstones? Will we have it in our pocket? I don't know. But there will be a stone that will have our name written on it. Here it can get even a little bit deeper. Somebody say, go deep. It may, it may be written in the language of our tongue. And that God understands these tongues that he has given us. And there is a language you don't understand. It's the language that made your friends think I was crazy when you brought them here for Easter service. La, 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 la. What is wrong with your church? Why does your church do that in the middle of this? La, 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 la. And then here on my stone. La, 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 la. La, la, la. <laughs> this is not my tongue, but we have to as Pentecostals be honest with ourselves. We are weird sometimes. So why stop now? And so honestly, what is a language? What, is, what, what are words? What are the things we're doing when we're being spiritual? And could that be the way you'll never decipher it? You'll never know. Just be, and so you'll just be like, what does that mean? I'm like, I'm never telling you. I don't want to tell you. And you'll have yours. Yours will be like, okay. I can't do it very well. That will be yours. And I'll be like, okay, all right. I get it. You know, but I, I, I know you love yours like I love mine. How many are ready to get back to the serious part? Let's go to these false teachings now. Because we better be careful all the way at the bottom, good sir. Thank you. We better be careful that we don't allow these things to come into our lives. So I want to take what he was correcting them over and apply it to our lives. He said that the teachings of Balaam lead to idolatry and the pagan festivals. So they always had food, just like how we have communion. You know, we rejoice in our God. They had times where they ate and rejoiced in their gods. But they were false gods. And Balaam was the prophet of a false god. But God spoke to him at this time during the, the Exodus. And God gave him some words that actually came true because uh, Balak wanted him to curse the Israelites. I have the references in the scriptures when we were up at top there. If you want to read about the story of Balaam, and this is where a donkey talks and God shows up and does something amazing. But the point is, is Balaam turns, even though he had heard the voice of God and had blessed Israel, he turns against them and says to the king, lure, lure these people and put a hook in their mouth, in other words, and bring them in through sexual immorality. We're not going to be able to curse them because God has power over them that way. So in other words, there isn't a spiritual power above the God of the Israelites that we can appeal to to curse them. Because who's going to curse them? The devil? The devil's under that God's feet. You know, that God steps on that devil. So we have no higher authority to go to. But what Balaam did was say, but let's get them to sin and turn against their God. Doesn't that sound just like what Satan would do today? Satan goes, I know I can't take you out by going to another God because I'm already the God of this world and I've been defeated by Jesus. So what does Satan then do? But I'm going to come into the church. I'm going to attack the churches, even the ones that are willing to die for Jesus, folks like here who are willing to, to suffer for Jesus. I'm going to go to even those good churches and I'm going to deceive them with the pagan idolatry of the world. I'm going to try to deceive them with sexual immorality. And so what would that look like in our culture? It would look like mixing paganism with Christianity, praying to saints, adorning statues and idols, being superstitious with tarot cards and spiritually guided yoga and meditation. I always teach about this. Nothing wrong with stretching, right? Here's the crooked chicken. I'm stretching. But how many know there's a difference when you go to spiritually guided meditation and yoga? There's somebody there giving you secret words and formulas that they give you. That's actually a part of it, as we're just mentioning. Isn't that something that the devil's always an imitator? A lot of times in yoga, the yogi will give you a secret mantra that he tells nobody else. What a false imitation. 
horoscopes and things like this the Bible warns against. This should not be present. We should reject these things. Do I think there's Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians who truly love Jesus? Yes, but they would be the kind of church that Jesus would say, but you're mixing in paganism here. We don't need statues of Mary. We don't need to talk to his mother or brother or, you know, anybody. All we need is him. We go to Jesus, amen? And then tarot cards and horoscope, what are they? They are an imitation of God. Now, I know a lot of people in this culture who think they can mix both, but they're actually not having either. They're not getting really Christianity, and they're being lukewarm. And you have to understand, God wants all of our heart. And this is his words, repent or else. The next one, sexual immorality. How many think that applies to our day? In the time of the, the writings of these scriptures, you could go to pagan temples, like how people now can go to Nevada where prostitution is legal or in other countries like Mexico and different places or like Amsterdam. You could go to pagan temples, perform religious duties, and then sleep with a temple prostitute. Imagine that, going to church and then sleeping with a prostitute. That's how wicked they were. And he's saying to them, that's what I'm going to fight against. But in our culture, what does it look like? They're, they're not coming here to get a prostitute, but they may be coming here to have their homosexuality affirmed. Come on, somebody, think about it. Back in those days, you would go to the pagan temple to worship a different god and bring all your sexual perversion to it. And then these Christians were saying, well, I want Jesus to do that. Why should I have to stop uh, participating in orgies? That, the Bible talks about not participating in orgies. How wicked were they that you have to be warned not to do that? How about homosexuality, adultery, pornography, nudity, all of these things that they were getting in their pagan temples? Like if you look at a lot of these pagan goddesses, what do they look like? They look like supermodels, don't they? Naked, their body parts are showing. That's pornography, a part of what they were worshiping. Now what do we call that? We call that Cardi B. What do we call this now? We call that Miley Cyrus, a perverted form of our religion that we now want to participate in and still consider ourselves Christians. This is all up in the church today, like as if God doesn't care about it. And we have to understand that if we don't repent of these things, God's going to fight against us. And then lastly, the Nicolaitans, I don't know what they were doing. I don't know why they got on God's bad side. Most people don't know. But I can mention a bunch of things that I know is happening in our church. I can tell you what's happening around this culture. People are idolizing Christian superstars, acting like because this pastor said it, that means it's true. I hope with all the fallings, the failings that we're seeing, we're at least getting one lesson, and that is don't trust anybody over the word of God. We're also seeing, as I mentioned before, a non-judgmental Jesus. People now get upset with us, even as Christians, and say we're talking about a mean Jesus, a judgmental Jesus, and so they actually have a false version of Jesus. A, another belief system that's coming into our church is many ways to heaven. You know, Christianity's right for me and maybe right for us, and ultimately it may be true, but God also wants to use Islam to bring people to himself. God also wants to use Hinduism, etc., how about greasy grace, where Christians come to church, are in leadership, they're serving, and yet there's no accountability to their sins. Yes, we may sin even as being a Christian, but there are churches that don't hold anybody accountable. They don't want the pastors held, the pastors don't want to be held accountable because they're not living right, and they don't want to hold you accountable because they don't want you to start holding them right. How about a self-centered Christianity? A Christianity that doesn't ask you to be obedient. A Christianity that doesn't send you out to change the world. A Christianity that allows you to stay exactly the way you are. I love how one meme said it this way. If after reading the Bible, everything agrees with whatever you've already agreed, you're not learning about God. You're just worshiping yourself. So you could just put a mirror in front of yourself, you know. Well, I believe this, and I affirm this. Oh, look, and I found a verse that says the same thing. Well, I believe this, and I believe that. Oh, I found another verse that says the same thing. The Bible literally says that we should be looking at the Scriptures as a mirror, and we should be getting transformed from the things that are out of place. It's not God that we're worshiping. It's ourselves oftentimes in our churches. A lot of the songs even that we're hearing and singing are centered towards ourselves and to the glory, instead of the glory of God. And then also we, we know there's problems in the church, but many people are rebellious towards even good leadership. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. A gentleman uh, read one of my posts that talked about how Christians will say this. Everybody get this. This is what a Christian will say. 
I love the epistles that Paul has wrote. I love 1 Timothy, the book of Ephesians. It gives me so much uh, good things to know about God. This is what Christians will say. And then they'll also say, but I don't need anybody to teach me. I'm on my own in this thing. And they won't understand the contradiction. You're reading a book that was written by a teacher to the congregation that was expected to follow it. So you're like, I get so much out of Ephesians. I just get to pick and choose what I want. My friends, if you were in the church of Ephesus, as we've already learned about, you wouldn't be able to do that. And then a gentleman actually hearing that came and argued with me. And he said, yeah, but it says in 1 John, you have the anointing and you need no man to teach you. I go, where did 1 John come from? Snuffleupagus or a teacher? You're literally having a teacher tell you that there are some things you don't need taught. What are those things? I said, go up to the verses prior. The truth about Jesus in your life. There is no teacher, including myself, that can convince you you are saved or convince you of the truth of Christianity. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So here he says to himself, I'm going to take permission not to listen to teachers anymore because I've been taught not to listen to teachers. I'm like, John didn't write, don't listen to teachers, and then say, peace, figure it out on, the, on your own with the anointing. He said this in regards to this, and then he goes, on teaching you. That's around chapter 2 and 3. He writes chapter 4 and 5. And so rebellion in the church exists even towards good leadership. Vinny, would you come, please, as we consider these things? How many want Jesus to give you hidden manna and a, a stone with your name on him? Does anybody here want Jesus to fight against you? No. How many want to fight with Jesus, for Jesus? Amen? you got to pay attention to the questions. Sometimes I ask questions and they confuse myself. Usually they come with double negatives, you know. Oh, Lord, I, I hear your spirit speaking to the church. I hear what your spirit is saying. Somebody say, I have ears, Jesus, to hear what you're saying. Right now, would you think about those things that are happening in our churches? Think about those things that are happening in Christianity and see if they're in your heart today. Altar workers, would you come as well? Lord, we do not want to make ourselves out to be better than anyone else because without your grace, without your wisdom, we could do no good. There is no good in us of ourselves. All the good that we have, all the wisdom, the knowledge that we have is found in you, Jesus. Father, we love your son today. We do not want that double-edged sword to cut us down, but rather we want it to cut off that which does not belong. Are there things in your life that don't belong? Have there been teachers or leaders that have maybe even approved of those things, things that you've picked up along the way? Would you repent today or else Jesus will fight against you? Today we have a choice, few moments. If you've never known Jesus, ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life by simply confessing him to be the one who died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again. Just use simple words. Pray and say, Jesus, I believe. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Change me. I want to live for you. And then you can join us here as we're searching our hearts for the things that should be cut off. A few more moments. Lord, you said that teachers will be judged even more strictly. Lord, I pray that anything that's in my heart that I've picked up along the way would be cut out right now. For we want to live for you, Jesus. Now as you're thinking of those strong exhortations from the Lord, thank him today that he's providing even some of that hidden manna and that he's building a relationship with you. That stone will represent the kind of relationship that you've always had with him. As we begin to stand, we'll dismiss in just a moment, but would you stand with us please? If you need prayer for any of the things mentioned today, we're going to close out worshiping, but you can even start to come right now. And as some are coming, would you just get intimate with the Lord for a few moments and say, Lord, show me how you love me. Teach me your ways. Feed me your manna. I'm listening. I'm wanting to obey. A few moments right now of him cutting, out the good, uh, cutting off the bad and putting in the good will transform your life and mine. We surrender, Jesus. We surrender to you, Lord. 
We surrender to your will, to your way. We're going to sing this song, I Surrender All. Would you uh, please put up the words for those who may not know it. It's an oldie but goodie. And it's so appropriate as we get ready to uh, leave out of this place, but not leaving from his presence, remembering that, yes, he loves us. He's so proud of us for not denying the faith, coming to church, being consistent in this generation. But he wants to warn us, if there's any here today who are falling for the false teachings of the world, to have them be cut out and removed. Remember, Satan cannot take you out of the hands of God. No weapon formed against you can prosper. But if you choose, but if you choose to not repent or to do things that displeases God, you will then suffer, not because of the devil, but because of your or my own decision. We will suffer. A few moments right now, then we're going to close out singing this song. Change our lives, oh God. Make us like you. We pray for those teachers in which these things come, whether they are like a Cardi B or a Miley Cyrus or from like Bill Maher or other religions like Islam or Hinduism. We pray for your truth to reach them, O oh Lord. God, if you could save Kanye, you can save Miley. Jesus, if you can save Kurt Cameron, you can save Bill, Bill Mars. Lord, if you've brought Muslims out by the hundreds and thousands in other countries, you can bring revival of the millions here. Lord, we ask you to do it. We ask you to do it, Jesus. Do a work in our lives, for we don't want you to fight against us. As the second service folks can come in and maybe start to worship, we're going to dismiss now singing this song. If you have to go, have a wonderful day. If you want to stay, feel free to stay. Otherwise, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you. All to thee. Yes, I surrender. God bless those of you who have to go, but those who want to worship, sing this oldie but goodie with us.